Elephants are one of my favorite animals. They are unbelievably strong, the strongest land animal. They can carry 6,000 kilograms. I've even seen one up close on a safari, very privileged to be able to do that. And, and there's a wild elephant that for a moment we thought was gonna stampede us. It was crazy wild, it had like a ripped ear, and was making noises and all kinds of stuff like that. We of course got away, but it is this, this terrifying, powerful animal. But it's said that you can control elephants by getting them when they're really young and putting a chain around their leg and they can't break away from that chain. So they grow up thinking that they are unable to break the chain, not realizing how powerful they really are. Hi, if you're joining us today, nice to have you with us. My name is Howard. It's my joy to lead this historic church, Westminster Chapel. We're in a series that is seeking to destroy and silence shame and we're looking at that today through the shame that makes us feel very weak almost shamefully weak unaware of how powerful we are in Jesus Christ we feel overwhelmed by our weakness sometimes overwhelmed by our inability to face life's challenges to resist temptations and sin to make a difference with our lives, to follow a great calling and to be somebody. We just feel so weak that we don't feel able to do that. It's made worse by looking around at people who seem so impressive. The steely, determined career woman who also presents as the perfect spouse and mother, at least as Instagram would have us believe. Or there's the macho male leader who never flinches in the face of danger. Just feel like, oh, I just don't measure up. I'm nowhere near that. There's only hope for me. But then this gets worse because the world looks on a Christian with pity and sort of sympathy. Oh, those weak religious people, they need a crutch. They can't cope with life and the difficulties on their own. I tell you, everybody needs a crutch. Most people have a crutch even if they don't know it and the question is how strong is that crutch? Can it hold you up not just physically but emotionally and spiritually as well? In those times when you feel crushingly weak that I as a leader I feel like that. I can wake up sometimes feeling like I don't know where the strength is going to come from to get through the day ahead. Ephesians chapter 1 this wonderful first century letter is the answer to that. We've reached verses 19 to 21. Amazing verses. And this is part of a prayer that Paul has been praying. And it's a prayer made out of three what's. The first what is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. The second, the treasured possession that we are in Jesus Christ. Ray unpacked that so well last week. Today we're going to look at the third what that Paul prays into, which is all about power power verse 19 says what is the immeasurable greatness of this power the is it's very interesting here paul isn't praying that the christians would get more power not at this point he's not praying that god would get them out of trouble and danger through his power in that sense would come and pick them up i am a christian get me out of here Make my life easier. That's not how Paul prays. Paul prays that they would know the power that they already have to meet every trial, challenge and difficulty of life. 
I sometimes think that Christians, we Christians, through kind of the feeling our weakness, think that we're driving around in the spiritual car of a reliant regent, the three-wheeled car that uh, Del Boy made famous from um, Only Fools and Horses, the TV show. It's only got 29 BHP, British horsepower. The truth is, a believer in Christ is driving something more like a McLaren 540C Coupe, a really powerful car, 533 BHP, that can go from 0 to 124 miles an hour in 10.5 seconds flat. It's got a V8 engine. It's worth $1.6 million. If you'd like to buy one for your church pastor, it would be gratefully received. I'm just teasing. Today, by the power of the Holy Spirit ministering to you, at home, as you open up your heart to him, I believe he's going to help you to rev the engine, to just start to see and experience just how much power there is under the hood of the Christian faith. What exactly is this power then? That is the first of four questions I want to address and talk about with you today. We're going to look at what and then who gets this power, when do you get it, and how can you get it? So firstly, what is this power? Well, I want to make three points to you about that. The first is that this power is beyond words. Paul uses four words. He's like piling up words to describe it. Power, strength, might, exertion. And he adds to that adjectives, descriptors to increase and intensify our understanding of this power. Great might or immeasurable greatness of this power immeasurable that word means in another sphere another realm another dimension so other is God's power so greater is his power in other words this is a power that's beyond words <laughs> that's the first point here the second point is it's surprising what Paul refers to as the chief example of God's power. It's not firstly creation. That's surprising because God's power is revealed in creation and God creates ex nihilo out of nothing physical. He forms and fills our world, our universe. It's not nothing begetting nothing, it's God begetting everything. Some people say that Right at the start, you can trace it all the way back there and that kind of redefine nothing as sort of quantum fields and vacuums. That's not nothing, by the way. In the beginning, God. That is the best explanation for the origins of everything. And it shows God's power flinging stars out into existence. Millions, billions of them. It's extraordinary. He can bring about a flood. He can part an entire sea so a whole people group can walk through it. Such is the power of God. But it's not that display in creation of God's power that Paul highlights. There's still something greater. Ah, is it providence? Is it that? Could it be providence that he points to here? That that's the expression of God's power, that God is absolutely in control of everything, even though men and women, people have free will and will be held accountable for their behaviour, that God's still in control. 
Is that the power of God, that the bridal bit, if you like, of providence, God's control is, is in the mouths of even great kings like Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, or King Cyrus of Persia, or Alexander the Great, that God's in control of them. Well, we see God's providence as well, that it's amazing ability to turn evil for good. We see that at the cross. The suffering of Christ, this most barbaric act, killing God, day aside, becomes the greatest act of liberation and transformation the world has ever known. And so for the believer, that we can see and expect that behind every seeming frowning providence hides God's smiling face. If you like, that sometimes the trials, the, the pressures of life come as a, as a roaring lion and you can see its teeth and the venom and the, the nastiness of this lion is going to get you. The power of God's providence allows you to look right into the sweet honey of its belly and to discover that God can put a good for the believer in the worst of circumstances. I think of Acts chapter 16 and the roar and terror of the lion of being imprisoned and put into a place of great suffering for Paul and Silas. But what happens? They get to experience in that prison the belly, the honey inside the lion as it becomes a praise party as they pray and thank God and their chains are supernaturally broken and it results in a great feast of salvation coming to the jailer and many others. But it's not that power of God either that Paul highlights. What is this ultimate power? The ultimate power that Paul uses to evidence God's power is the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. There are four expressions of this ultimate power in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. The first is it's a life-giving power. This counters the understanding of power today. Yes, power is something that we all want, but we're all aware that most people end up abusing. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, so the saying goes. You see some idea of how human beings handle power in the film Bruce Almighty. Jim Carrey's character is given some of the powers of God. What does he use them for? For selfish reasons. He pulls the moon closer to better woo his girlfriend. He parts the traffic so that he can get to where he wants to go sooner. He enhances the size of his girlfriend's breast so he can enjoy more pleasure. It's all a sinful, craven use of power. God doesn't use power like that. This power is not like that. This is an other-centered. This is a life-giving power. This is a, a power that has the power to lay down its life in order to bring life to others. That's because it's also a death-defeating power. Number two, the wages of sin is death. The consequences of our wrongdoing and our rebellion against God and the evil that we often perpetrate consciously or even unconsciously towards others there is a penalty and it is death spiritual separation from God and all that is good and it's expressed in a physical death in this life and we will all face it we spend most of our time trying to not think about that never wanting to talk about that it's understandable COVID-19 has made that 
so much clearer to all of us now that we will all one day die. We will all one day die. And there is no hope, no answer, no help available outside of Jesus Christ and his power. And that power punches through death to break a hole in it through which we can all go through, through faith in him. The third expression of this power is that it is an enemy crushing power. Not only the enemy of death is destroyed, but the enemy of all the spiritual powers in the world are broken and defeated by God's power. His name is above every name. He's put in the position of ultimate authority over all these other powers. Satan and demons who are responsible for so much of the evil in the world today, all their shame killing lies, all their condemnation, all their tricks, strategies to destroy, damage, discourage you, are broken by the power of God. If you like, they're all under Jesus's thumb now. This is so encouraging and it would have been so encouraging for the first century church hearing this, especially those Ephesians who had come out of occult practices, witchcraft, and sorcery and magic. They knew something of the spiritual powers in the world. They sort of experienced that. And that's pretty scary if you get into that world. But now they found a power that made them look like nothing. A good power, a clean power, a holy power, an almighty power. The fourth expression of this power is that it is history revealed or history revealing that it is embedded into history and therefore we're still discovering evidence that proves it true to some extent. There's archaeology going on and our thinking and knowing about the practices of crucifixion and resurrection and so forth. This didn't happen in a corner. This wasn't some private dream or private hallucination or, or things like that. This was a public event. People saw Jesus die. They heard, if you like, that his heart had stopped beating. They saw that he stopped breathing. They smelt death upon him as his body began to rot. They saw blood and water come out of his side. The first witnesses to his resurrection and coming back to life were women. So it's very interesting in the, the narrative and, and the story, because if you were writing this as a human author at the time, you wouldn't use women because their evidence was considered not credible. But this is God writing the account of his story through human agency. And it proves it true. More than 500 people saw Jesus risen from the dead and they were so convinced, we read, that they were willing to die for him. To die because of their belief by what they'd seen. The resurrection proved he was God. They were willing to die proclaiming him God. Because they knew that there was now a power stronger than death. That they were beneficiaries of. It's interesting to note the people who believed. Doubting Thomas believes. Jesus' own half-brother James who thought that he was mad. Believes that his own 
brother is the son of God. That, that's extraordinary. Paul himself, who's writing this letter, more than just a, a, a skeptic, he was a complete <clears throat> opponent of the Christian faith, looking for every reason to disprove it, yet he comes to believe it. There's also the secondary evidence, the sort of rapid spread of the Christian faith and the changing practice of the Friday evening to Saturday Sabbath, the holy day. For not just decades, but hundreds of years, this Jewish cultural practice that was ingrained in them, it changes almost overnight to become a Sunday celebration, resurrection day becomes the new holy day for these former Jews who are now followers of Jesus. Why is Paul pointing to this demonstration as the ultimate demonstration of God's power? Because you can touch it, you can feel it, it's historical, it's real. You can taste the truthfulness of it having actually happened and you can sort of see it more clearly in the demonstrable power of God breaking Jesus free from death to raise him to life in glory. Wow, this is some extraordinary power. That's the what. The next question is, who gets this power? And the answer is seemingly obvious from what I've said already, but it should also shock us. We deserve nothing but death and suffering for our rebellion against our creator, for our sinful selfishness and the way that we live so preoccupied with our own personal comfort and pleasure. And yet we don't get that. In Christ, through faith in him, it says that this immeasurable greatness is shown towards us who believe, that, that those who through faith, they get to taste and enjoy this unbelievable power. This is the unmerited favour of God to the praise of the glory of his grace. This is the gracious giving of God's power toward us who believe. We all need this. Even the Apostle Paul is recognising that. He says towards us, he's including himself, the, the mighty, impressive, unbelievably brilliant, perhaps the greatest mind and intellect apart from Christ who's ever walked upon our planet. This amazing man, he needed this power. In fact, this man was great only because of this power. And he would say that in his weakness... God made him strong. He's able to acknowledge his weakness, recognise it, almost revel in it that it might showcase the great power of God. Towards us who believe. Do you believe? Have you trusted in this power? Or are you trying to trust in your own power? Proudly thinking that your human strength is enough to take on the challenges, trials, difficulties of life and ultimately maybe somehow give an answer to the great problem of death. I tell you, today is a day to renounce that. If you want to know power, then you need to die, die, if you like, to yourself and your sin and all of that. To become dead like Jesus Christ so that you might unite with him through faith to come alive. And that the experience of resurrection that was his becomes yours. This is what happens. In a way, if you can get your head around it, there's no power in you to do that. There was no power in any of us for that to happen. We were, as Paul will write in chapter two, dead in our transgressions and sins. We were like a corpse, a dead corpse, 
at the bottom of the deepest part of the ocean. There was no power in us. We didn't meet God part way, you know, somewhere like that or sort of swim up. We weren't just sort of struggling in the water for him to come and rescue us. We were dead in our transgressions and sin. And God comes in Christ and he dies into the depths of the ocean to pull us up and to give us life, to share his life with us. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, the gospel, the good news about Jesus is the power of God to everyone who would believe. The power of God begins the moment a believer comes to faith. In fact, your very ability to come to faith is God's power. It's not your own power. The Christian life begins 100% dependent on this extraordinary, life-giving, death-destroying, enemy-crushing, historically revealing true power of God working in you to even enable you to believe in Jesus. And that is the power that begins a Christian life and flows through all the way throughout a believer's life. It's extraordinary. It's glorious. It should stir you to worship. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in you. The same power that sealed him, baptized him with the Holy Spirit, anointed him for ministry, enabled him to cast out demons, to heal the sick. The same power that enabled him to go to the cross un flinching and to face such suffering, that same power, this resurrection, life and glory flows through you because of the grace of God that should so inspire you, us, to worship him, which is what we're going to do right now. When do we get this power? I've hinted at this already, but verse 21 is particularly helpful here. It says in this age, but also in the age to come. And this speaks of an overlapping of ages, that there is a now and a not yet. The now and the not yet are coming together. The new world, the full reality of what it's going to be like with God forever, eternity, breaking in on our now earthly existence. And the Christian lives in the overlap to reveal the future world to the existing world. And there can be two dangers or errors that we can fall into as we seek to uh, live in this power, live out this power. The first is an over-realized or sort of un inappropriately optimistic expression of this power that thinks you get way more of it now whereas actually there's a lot of it still coming not yet and that can lead to disappointment you might think there's so much power that everybody should get healed all the time always and that's a mistake because it misunderstands the power of God in the power of God's providence in that sense that God can put his good into the worst of situations and thereby show his power in enabling a believer to overcome sickness and suffering and trial and difficulty, such by the power of the gospel working in their life. The other side of this is an under-realized approach, a more pessimistic or negative understanding. And that, I think, is Paul's main concern here. That's why he's writing that this group of churches in this region, they would understand, they would get hold of how strong they really 
Ah, I love the way that John Flaville puts this in his 1682 treatise on the fear of God. This great Puritan writer, he says this, to quiet the fears and stay the flight of Christians in those bloody times, times of persecution. Art thou afraid of a man? O Christian, when devils are afraid of thee, as a prisoner of his judge, and whom the world ought to fear, as being one that shall judge the world? Oh, that we could, without pride and vanity, but value ourselves duly according to our Christian dignities and privileges, which is ever it be necessary to count over and value. It is in such times of danger and fear when the heart is so prone to dejection and sinking fears. God wants you to see and get hold of how powerful you are than him. in him. You have more power than Wolverine had with that adamantian steel, this indestructible strength put into his being, this incredible superhero. I tell you, you've got to steal a hundred thousand times stronger than adamantium that comes to you through God's power in you that comes to life through the power of the Holy Spirit upon you. How then do we get this power? Well, the context is prayer. We pray for revelation of the power that we already have in Christ. Paul helps us with this with his parallel prayer, matching prayer from Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14 onwards. And in that prayer, he highlights two ways that we should be praying to receive power. Power to make room and space fully for Christ to dwell in us so that he can beautify us. This is a little bit like when people might buy a flat, say, that's not so nice. Uh, it's been occupied by a smoker and it's black and sooty, nicotined, it's smelly, um, not very nice, but they move in and they beautify this flat, little by little, onwards and so forth. And so it is with Christ, that Christ beautifies a believer from the inside out, that he gives you power to live a holy life, to say no to sin, to live for his righteousness and glory. The second way that Paul prays into this theme of power is for power to comprehend the four D, love of God, the height, breadth, depth, width of God's unbelievably wonderful love. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 8. He says it with a question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, danger or sword? No, none of that can separate us from Christ. He goes on, death, Angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, not height, not depth, none of these things, nothing in all of creation, he says, can separate us from the love of Christ. There is a love that is stronger than death, that is stronger than the grave, that holds a believer, that is so strong, it brings a believer into everlasting life forever with God. That nothing, nothing can break this union of love tie between a believer and Jesus Christ. Wow! And as we start to comprehend this love, we start to overflow with this love to a lost and needy world. 
start to shine bright, holy, beautified, loved children of God, bringing the light of God into a dark world. This is how God can make the weakest believer incredibly strong in him. He's done this throughout history and the Bible records many examples of this. You have Gideon, Judges chapter 6, very weak. He's called a mighty man of valour by God and he becomes a mighty man of valour by the power of God. The uneducated fishermen who are empowered by God to take on not just the Jewish leaders but the pride, pomp and all of that stuff of Rome and they're victorious. Paul talks about his own weaknesses like this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he wrestles with them and then God speaks to him and says, My grace is sufficient for you because my power, Paul, is made perfect in weakness. So Paul responds, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. This is God's modus operandi, that he loves to display his power and glory through, through our weakness. His weakness isn't a, a barrier for him to work. It's a very doorway through which he, he works. It showcases more the goodness of God, and it sort of brightens the luster, the, the jewel of the grace of the gospel, so it's seen more clearly. God can make the weakest believer incredibly strong. There's a wonderful example of this from the turn of the fourth century from a 12-year-old girl, Eulalia of Emerita in Portugal. Under the persecution of the Emperor Diocletian, she has come to faith from the pagan Roman culture that she grew up in and now she's going to be killed for her faith. Her only way out is to recant. And so they entice her to try and do that by saying things like, you're so young. Don't waste your life on Christ. You could be married. You could be given much wealth through marriage. But in response to that, she speaks to her executioners and says to the hangman, go about your task. Cut bruise, break, dismember the parts of this earthly body, for it is easy to break its brittleness, but you cannot break the power and strength I have in God. It's what she says effectively. God can make the weakest, most tenderest, most frail believer incredibly strong. A billion times plus, plus, plus stronger than an elephant, he can give you power to stand firm. He can give you power to live a holy life. He can give you power to say no to sin. He can give you power to persist in prayer. He can give you power in order to break stronghold addictions in your life, like pornography, like an addiction to approval that's seen in an obsession with social media that you just can't put your phone down. Couldn't go without it for a day, 24 hours, let alone a week. God can give you power to overcome. And as this power that is 
already in you, that he's already given you, that you're realizing, and he's giving you revelation of this power, as this heavenly love power is seen, and its greatness is seen above human willpower, it's a witness to the world. This countercultural, this extraordinary, weak, though unbelievably strong people start to provoke questions and curiosity from people around us. You want to make a difference. You want to change the world. You want to see hundreds of lives transformed. I hope you answer, yes, I really do. Well, I tell you, it's not about wallowing in weakness. It's about boasting in that weakness. Because it's the very door through which God likes to make his power manifest and known to release and unlock it to our minds that you could see it. That we might change this world for the better for his glory. As we pray, pray, pray to see the power that we already have in Christ. Oh God, thank you. Thank you that you give us this most extraordinary power, this life-giving, death-defeating, enemy-crushing, historically revealed and revealing, wonderful power. Help us to know the power we have. Help us to revel in this power. Let this power rise up from within us. Let it come upon us and be intensified through the Holy Spirit's ministry right now to strengthen even the feeblest heart to stand for you, to stand firm in trial, to stand firm as a witness for you in their neighbourhood, in their workplace, in their family. Stand firm against sin, to live a holy life that shines forth the glory and the precious jewel and greatness 